good afternoon from the KLX studios in Berkeley, California. I'm Franklin, and this is the Berkeley Rock Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, bending light and inertial selective reaction. In addition, we're joined by Professor Dan Hooper, who will talk about dark matter and energy. Also, we'll find out what the eye of the Orion is. So stay tuned for all this, plus the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous question of the week. Coming right up here on the Berkeley Rock Science Show. Welcome back to Berkeley Rocks. I'm Frank Ling. And once again, I guess that makes me Charles Lee. The voice of time travel. Were you sent back to save us from ourselves? Sent back to save you from Arnold Schwarzenegger. Oh, thanks. <laughs> Green SUVs. <laughs> I gotta get one of those. So did you come here by accident? We're supposed to go back to the 1800s and stop Napoleon. <laughs> well, much like Philip J. Fry, I uh, was delivering a pizza and fell into a cryogenic freezing chamber. Somehow that sent me backwards in time. I'm not sure how that works. <laughs> Such as life. Maybe your atoms reach zero point energy or something. <laughs> in some... It might be quite similar, in fact, to the way that light can bend uh, in a negative refractive index. Ah, oh, <laughs> indeed. As if that were a very poor excuse for a segue, here we go. It's the story <laughs> regarding a way lenses can actually be used to bend light backwards, in a sense. So we can really see the past or the future. <laughs> Perhaps you can even see what your own backside looks like. I've always wondered. <laughs> but actually, I don't want to. From this perspective, probably you're right. I'm sure most people know about general ways a surface medium can actually bend light, phenomenon known as refraction. So, for example, if you just try sticking a pencil in a glass of water, you can see that the light bends it. Right. So, actually, what happens if you replace this water water with what's known as a left-handed material, it'll actually bend the ray so much that it in fact travels all the way around so it looks like it actually kinks and backs under itself. Huh. Term negative refractive. Is this uh, a liquid or is it? Some sort of material. But it's actually quite difficult to actually create these type of materials. Mm-hmm. Previously been shown for uh, microwaves and now physicists at the California Institute of Technology, Henry Lezik, Jennifer Dione, and Harry Atwater have created a material which is basically 50 nanometer thick layer of insulating silicon nitride, which is sandwiched between silver on the top and gold on the bottom. And this is apparently... Expensive stuff. Yeah, well, I don't think you're going to be able to run out of the corner drugstore and grab it, but... (laughs) Basically, when light interacts with this material at proper wavelengths, it creates what are basically termed as these ripples that run upstream against the flow of the light, which produce the negative refractive index. As they suggest, can lead to all kinds of novel optical materials. So uh, a military must be quite interested in using this stuff to uh, camouflage their various equipment, huh? The military is interested in anything that could potentially be used to kill. (laughs) This flat device works only for light traveling in the same plane as the slab. Okay. But even so, any advance could lead to optical systems on a chip, for example, uh-huh. or it could be made to have 3D materials that bend light coming from any direction. So oh, cool. it's still at a very preliminary stage right now, but still a lot of work to be done. I'm sure one day it'll be in the iPhone. <laughs> Everything will be in the iPhone one of these days, even your soul. It's published in a recent edition of Science. So speaking of past Caltech and science, an old friend actually now appears in the news again. Who is our old friend? Professor David McMillan. Ah, David McMillan. (laughs) 
<laughs> the great Scottish chemists. Who's now at Princeton, and he holds the A. Barton Hepburn Chair of Chemistry. Wow, that guy gets around. I remember, <laughs> First, he started here, right? Yeah, I remember he was just an assistant professor here at uh, yeah, Berkeley. Yeah, humble beginnings. Yes. <laughs> Hired away by Caltech, I believe. Yeah. And now uh, head of a department at Princeton. Director of the Merck Center for Chemistry. <laughs> yeah, that's impressive, but it's not Harvard. <laughs> He did go to Harvard, by the way. Yeah, but, that's uh, his first strike against him. But <laughs> I guess this is cool new paper which came in Science now suggests that there is a way to create catalysts inexpensively for numerous enantiomer selective reactions. These are the ones that select for a potential chirality or mirror image of a molecule so that you get one form but not the other. Right. Famous example is thalidomide. The mirror image or its evil twin causes birth defects. Right. Whereas um, the other one is uh, useful for... Morning sickness. Right. In his new paper, he says that we can do these with organic catalysts. So until now, most catalysts they use for these reactions required a metal, which were either very expensive or toxic or just very difficult to use. But he now describes a series of these organic molecules, just completely organic catalysts, which seem to do the same job mm. and could potentially bring down the price for creating lots of cool drugs out there. <laughs> you know, chemists, they're always coming up with brand new molecules. Why can't they come up with one that helps me get a date? <laughs> Well, you know, Japan actually sells these ties that have pheromones laced in them. Oh, well. <laughs> They're in tune with our primal nature. Yes. Anyways, uh, this was reported in, in Science. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. This is the Berkeley Grox Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, Dr. Dan Hooper will join us to discuss dark matter and energy. So stay tuned. Science show. Well, the material world seems permanently solid, but new findings from physics suggest that the ordinary matter we know of comprises just 5% of the total matter. The remaining 95% is comprised of dark matter and dark energy. Well, what is the nature of these mysterious forms of matter and energy? Joining us today on Berkeley Grox to discuss the mysterious world of dark matter and energy is Dr. Dan Hooper. Dr. Hooper is currently the David Schramm Fellow at the Fermi National Accelerator Laboratory. He's the author of numerous scientific publications in prestigious journals, such as the Physical Review Letter. His new book, Dark Cosmos, In Search of Our Universe's Missing Matter and Energy, explores this new issue for a general audience. Dr. Hooper, thank you very much for joining us today on the Berkeley Grox Science Show. It's good to be here. Uh, well, this is certainly a very fascinating issue, and maybe before we get into what the dark matter really is, maybe we can talk about what is normal matter. Well, if you think back to your high school chemistry class, you learn this thing called the periodic table, which basically describes all of the stuff we're familiar with around us in our world. So if you look at the desk in front of you, your car, if you're in your commute now, or the air around us, our hands, our bodies, our planet, all this stuff is chemical elements, which are all made of three things, protons, neutrons, and electrons. And that's basically the whole world we know. 
the really interesting thing about modern cosmology is that we've used it to learn that that's only a four or five percent or so of the total energy and mass in our universe. And the other 95 or 96 percent is in far more exotic stuff that we call dark matter and dark energy. What is the evidence from cosmology that suggests that this dark matter and energy exists? So we've known that dark matter exists for quite some time now. The evidence became pretty compelling back in the 70s. The way you do this, or a way you can tell that it's there, is by looking at the way galaxies rotate. So when a planet revolves around its star, like our planet revolves around the sun, we can tell how heavy the sun is by how fast the planet spins around it. The faster it spins around it, the more gravity there must be holding in its orbit, and the more heavy that star must be. Similarly, when we look at the Milky Way or a different galaxy and look at stars moving around the center of that, you can use this to essentially weigh the galaxy itself. And when we do this, we find that you know, only a tiny fraction of the total mass of the galaxy is in that visible stuff we see, like stars and planets. The rest is in something invisible that uh, we call dark matter. I see. And the dark energy, how do we uh, have a feeling of where that's coming from? So to understand what we mean by dark energy, we have to go way back to Albert Einstein. Back around 1915 or so, Albert Einstein published his famous theory of general relativity. One of the things that this theory was able to do is you could apply it to the universe as a whole and show that it was actually possible that space itself, the space of our universe, could be expanding or contracting with time, growing or shrinking, in other words. And sometime after that theory was put out, Edwin Hubble and others observed for the first time that, in fact, space is growing. If you look deep back into our universe, we find that everything is moving away from us. This is because the amount of space between us and these objects is growing with time. The universe is getting bigger. So that was exactly what people um, using Einstein's equations would have expected to find until back in uh, 1998. These observations got a little more detailed, and they saw that not only was the universe expanding and getting bigger, but it was getting bigger and expanding at a faster and faster rate. Now, that really surprised people, because that's not what you would expect from Einstein's equations. In fact, the only way that Einstein's equations can come to the conclusion that this expansion rate should be accelerating, like it is, is if energy is built into the very fabric of space. So even if you take all of the matter out of space and make it as empty as you can, there's still some energy in it, and we call that dark energy. And that's most of the energy and mass in our universe is in that form, this strange dark energy. Didn't Einstein come up with this initially and call it one of uh, his biggest follies? Yeah, the history is kind of interesting. When Einstein wrote down these equations for the first time, he saw that, wow, this is going to make the universe get bigger or smaller, and we can't do that. He was uncomfortable with that idea. He had this prejudice that the universe must be static and unchanging. So he added a term in by hand, which we would now call something like dark energy, in order to exactly balance these things. Well, it turns out that that basic idea that, that there could be this energy content in space itself is true, but it was of a very different size and nature than Einstein originally posited. Uh, what are some candidates then now for uh, this dark matter and the dark energy? Well, we have a lot of good ideas for what dark matter might be. Perhaps the most popular are particles associated with a theory we call supersymmetry. So according to the supersymmetry hypothesis, in addition to all of the types of matter and particles that we've learned about and discovered so far, all of those particles has, have superpartner particles which are yet to be discovered, heavier exotic types of matter. 
And it's very possible that one or more of those types of matter could constitute the dark matter of our universe. And we're actively looking for these kinds of particles. For example, I work at the Fermi National Accelerator Lab in Illinois, where we have the biggest particle accelerator that's ever built right now uh, operating called the Tevatron. This experiment is a four-mile ring underground that protons are accelerated uh, around to speeds just slightly below the speed of light. And now we have two beams of these things going in opposite directions, and we run them into each other and collide these protons together. And when you do that, you get so much energy at one point at one time that you can actually create new kinds of matter. And we're hoping to create these supersymmetric particles in this way and hopefully create dark matter in the laboratory for the first time. Dark energy, on the other hand, is a tougher nut to crack. We don't really have any good theoretical ideas for why dark energy exists in the way that it does. People are working on it, but it's going to take some sort of very different thinking to solve this problem, and it's, the solution is probably farther off. Is there any evidence thus far from these colliding experiments of dark matter, then? Well, I have to say not yet, but we're optimistic. Um, the Tevatron's currently running, and we're hoping to get some sort of discoveries in, before it turns off in a few years. And about the time that that experiment's going to be wrapping down, even bigger experiment in uh, Switzerland, known as the Large Hadron Collider, is going to turn on. And if supersymmetry exists in nature, or even some other physics that does the things supersymmetry normally is designed to do, uh, this experiment will very likely find it. And we're very, very optimistic about experiments like the Tevatron and Large Hadron Collider and their ability to discover the dark matter of our universe in, uh, in addition to other things. Are there other interesting theories of the dark matter perhaps being uh, regular matter just passing through the multiple dimensions that is posited by string theory? Sure. A really interesting piece of modern physics is that this last century has produced really two remarkable theories. One is Einstein's theory of relativity, and the other theory is quantum physics, or sometimes known as quantum field theory. And these two theories are remarkably successful at making all kinds of predictions, and they've never been shown to be incorrect. But we know that ultimately these two theories are not compatible with each other. There has to be some set of circumstances where at least one of the two theories break down in order to accommodate the other. So we are working as a theoretical physics community towards trying to build a theory that can contain both of them. And our best guess so far is something called string theory. Well, I'm not going to get into all the details of string theory here, but I'll mention that one of the consequences, one of the things that seems to be required of string theory is that there are more than three dimensions of space. In fact, there have to be about 10 if you include time. So instead of four total dimensions, you need 10. And we obviously don't see them in our normal day-to-day -day lives, so there's something special about the others. Maybe they're very small and wrapped up so that we can't travel into them, or maybe the kind of matter we're made of can't move in those dimensions. We're not really sure. But anyway, one possibility for what dark matter is is that an ordinary matter, like the kind that our tables and desks and chairs and everything else are made of, if you take that and you spin it around an extra dimension very quickly, to us, instead of seeing something moving because we can't see that dimension, it simply appears as a very, very heavy piece of ordinary matter. And maybe that very heavy ordinary matter, but probing these extra dimensions, is in fact the dark matter of our universe. It's a little less likely than the supersymmetry hypothesis, in, in my opinion, but it's, it's an interesting possibility. This is something you could test. So just like you can produce these supersymmetric particles in a collider experiment, you could easily imagine producing these heavy copies of ordinary matter, which are actually just traveling in extra dimensions, in the same kind of experiment. So it's, it's something that you could imagine learning in the near future. Hmm.
What are the consequences then for uh, all this dark matter and dark energy for uh, the fate of the universe? So back when we didn't know about dark energy, we, we assumed there wasn't any in the universe and it was just everything was matter or radiation. Then we said that the more matter there was in the universe, the more that the universe would eventually contract and fall in on itself. So if there was a whole lot of matter in the universe, eventually it would fall together and kind of do a reverse Big Bang called a Big Crunch, where everything gets hot and falls together um, and ultimately destroys itself. And if there was a very little amount of matter, the opposite would happen. Everything would fly apart, although gradually slowing down, and everything would eventually get infinitely far from everything else. When you throw dark energy in the mix, this all changes. In fact, what dark energy does and how we know dark energy is there is it causes the universe ex expansion rate to grow faster and faster and faster. And as a result of this acceleration, fate of the universe is that everything flies faster and faster apart from each other until the universe is infinitely large and infinitely uh, low density. And essentially everything gets shredded into little subatomic particles. But don't worry, that's many, many billions of years away. So there's no reason to lose sleep over that conundrum. Uh, well, not very comforting for our descendants then. <laughs> well, I, I think we're not going to be around in 20 billion years to see this, so I wouldn't worry. <laughs> okay, well, I guess we're running slightly off time, but I'm curious, how did you yourself become interested in this issue? Well, um, when I started graduate school, it was only a couple of years after dark energy had, or about the same time, actually, that dark energy had first been discovered. So I really saw the first papers come out announcing this sort of thing, and, and I saw the first seminars and lectures on this, and it was really exciting in the community. Similarly, development was being made in all kinds of types of cosmology, so the dark matter was becoming more well understood and more things about it were being learned. So it was a very natural thing to gravitate towards as a young researcher, and I'm really glad I did because I think it's a very exciting topic to work on. Well, it certainly is, and Dr. Hooper, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Berkeley Grok Science Show. My pleasure. And you were just listening to Dr. Dan Hooper discussing dark matter and energy. This is the Berkeley Grok Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, we have the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned.
right, we're back, and we're ready to play our game, the Grokatron 5000. That's right, it's our supercomputer, formerly known as the ColecoVision. And today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic Terra Firma, or Missing Matter. So, for the following five people, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know if you think they're Terra Firma or Missing Matter. Dr. Hooper, are you ready to play our game? I'm ready. All right, person number one is... Britney Spears. <laughs> oh, how, how do I say this without being insulting? Um, so, yeah, I, I think uh, you could pass through her pretty easily without noticing, so I'm going to call her dark matter. <laughs> All right, number two, Oracle founder Larry Ellison. Okay, so this is a definitely a big player in, in the, the world of business and technology, so I'm, I'm going to say that he's a really solid figure and uh, one to reckon with, so I'm going to call him Terra Firma. Okay, uh, number three, the famed astronomer Edwin Hubble. Edwin Hubble, okay. So most people don't know this, but before he became a scientist, Edwin Hubble was an exceptional athlete and basketball player. He was an enormous guy, not just tall, but just stacked. So, um, yeah, he's definitely Terra Firma in my book. All right, and uh, number four, the famed golfer Tiger Woods. <laughs> Tiger Woods, okay. Well, I'm not going to use the same reasoning I just gave for Edwin Hubble, so I'm going to try to think of something new and clever to say. So, okay, if, if I were a golfer in the PGA trying to compete with him, I think it would be pretty hard to catch up with him or try to compete with him, just like it's really hard for astronomers to capture what this dark matter is. So I'm going to say he's like dark matter. Okay, very good. And number five, the President of the United States, George Bush. <laughs> Beautiful. Well, let's just say that I consider him as dense as terra firma. <laughs> okay. All right, well, uh, Dr. Hooper, I do want to thank you very much for uh, sticking around, playing our game, The Grokatron 5000, and talking about your book, Dark Cosmos. I want to know how'd I score. <laughs> five out of five. Outstanding. Thank you. Oh, Scarecrow, what do you think you know? Look up in the sky, you'll see it there. The eye of Orion. <laughs> and Shimon, the smoking monkey boy here with this week's question of the week. What is the long tail? I use it to hang upside down and grab me some mangoes. But out there, the long tail means different things. If you know what it might mean or what it really means, email us at grocks at hotmail.com. You won't win anything, but you just might find your niche. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grox, you can email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music.